0: systematically your weekly theology podcast i'm john heaps i'm in my walk-in closet in austin texas and i'm here via a uh, wonderful
1: technology with robin beret hey robin good morning and ryan hemmer hey ryan oh oh where'd ryan go we lost him come back i'm back oh hey there he is Whew. Don't give me
0: a scare like that so early in the show. I'm not sure my heart can take it. Uh, we are going to pick up where we left off after last episode. Uh, that Probably be episode 31, I guess. Um, we're going to pick up talking about divine agency. So we, we talked about divine agency sort of insofar as it is agency last time. Um, so you can go back and listen to that if you want. The nuts and bolts of Lonergan's uh, Thomist account of extrinsic or contingent predication. But we're going to zoom in today, especially it's on... It's barn
2: burner, guys. It
0: is. It's wild, You can't man. miss
2: it. It's a wild ride.
0: Robin's got a drinking game for it. Uh, so, we're, But today we're going to zoom in on the question of divine freedom. That was sort of what, where we meant to land last time. And uh, we ran out of time and I sort of realized that uh, I wasn't quite as clear as I wanted to be on precisely that question. So uh, it took a week to
1: get my head straight. And now I have thoughts, people. Um, but before the thoughts, before thoughts for your thoughts, we wanted to do a little bit of frivolity. And um, this is an idea I had because
0: I I was listening to, I've mentioned many times on the show before that uh, I I listened to a lot of like national security podcast stuff. It's kind of a weird hobby I've developed, uh, and I was listening to Lawfare's The Report, which is a um, relatively high production. Uh, sort of walk through the Mueller report stuff and they've just pivoted from the uh, first volume of the, the Russian uh, intervention in the election stuff to the uh, ostensible um, obstruction of justice stuff in the second volume. And I was walking the dog listening to this and I was thinking, man,
1: it would be cool to be I
0: able to have
2: better hobbies.
1: Yeah. <laughs> wow. 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 That hurts my feelings. Um, I mean, you're not
0: wrong, but it still hurts my feelings. Um, I'm
2: sorry, John. I admire your dedication to democracy.
0: I, I care about so it. I was at a law fair meet and greet last night in Austin because the Texas Tribune Fest is happening, and I was talking to Quinta Jurassic last night uh, about how surprised I am that I really think democracy is important, which if you had told little Howard Wash reading me that a decade ago, I would have been surprised. Um, but here I am, caring about liberalism. Weird. Um, but anyway, I was listening to this, and I was thinking, well, wow, it'd be really cool to be able to like put together such a like a highfalutin podcast with things like edits and uh, multiple sources, uh, and uh, I don't know, a, like a real Foley art, Foley arts. That's right, it's music, um, all that stuff. So my so my question to y'all is: if you could make a, a kind of you know
1: serial or This American Life style podcast about something. Uh, what would you do it about? What would the topic be? Not all at
3: once. Okay, well... Why, why don't you give us an example, John?
0: Okay, so um, here's an idea I had um, given the recent protests in Hong Kong, which I'm very uh, anxious about. The whole thing makes me really nervous. And... Um, so for a long time in Hong Kong, there was a part of Hong Kong that wasn't actually subject to British oversight. <clears throat> it was technically Chinese, but the Chinese didn't really do anything to govern it. And so you had, uh, you had this place called Kowloon City or Kowloon Walled City that was effectively like a few blocks of no government in the middle of British Hong Kong. And so people built with no building codes and no oversight, and they stole electricity and they stole phone lines and stuff. Uh, And it was like at one point it was the uh, most densest instance. uh, Most densest. It is early, excuse me. It is the most dense instance of um, like urban living that had ever occurred in the world. If people just had crammed themselves into these places because you could squat and not pay rent or whatever. I mean, I'm sure there were criminal syndicates or something that you had to pay off or whatever. But I would love to do a story that followed the sort of development and life of Kowloon-Walled City um, <clears throat> in parallel with the wider frame of the handoff of Hong Kong from the British to the Chinese. Um, I think it would be really interesting to look at the sort of dynamics of law and lawlessness and of colonialism and all that kind of stuff. It think it'd be really, um, it would be a fascinating story to tell. Uh, and you would just need all of God's money to do it. And uh, so, can, so this
3: is a frivolity segment in which we just name other obscure, nerdy things we're interested in.
0: Yes, correct.
3: And that's really what you're aiming at here. Okay, Whatever, man. Got it. All right.
0: I mean, if you it know, sounds like
3: a like a Roman Mars. Uh, Production there yeah so.
0: i think that's right I, I should pitch this to roman mars let him do it he'd do a better job than i would but that's what i had in mind that's what came to my mind immediately <laughs> immediately actually you know what's <laughs> fucked up actually that's the first thing that came to my mind i'm, I'm a messed up person i'm a broken I mean, man. yeah you're
2: podcasting from a walk-in closet on your saturday morning it's true oh man okay so i mean i've never even thought I would ever do a podcast I don't here listen you are to podcasts. <laughs> really. you're
0: not on Twitter. you don't listen to podcasts.
2: do I even exist?
0: get with the times
2: I just thought like the times I would listen to podcasts so cooking or um walking like or I guess driving, but I don't really do that these days much around the city um I haven't been on a like. And, and and driving on, like, long road trips, like, those are my times to just think and just, like, let my brain do its thing.
0: And you and find that, you find so that find to be with tolerable? The podcast,
2: like, I love it. Like, that's where, yeah. That's, like that I, is
0: hard to relate to.
2: Like, it's just, like, I walk, I, I, I notice my surroundings, I have a number of, like, storylines like I make up in my head. Uh, I listen to music a lot. I really like music and so if i'm walking or cooking or whatever i just like to listen to music so i've never really gotten into podcasts i give it a try every once in a while i think the problem is like like 10 minutes in my mind just wanders because i'm so used to those times being my mind wandering times and then i miss like half the podcast and then you know so you're saying
0: Um, your your problem with podcasts is that you have a rich inner life yeah okay
2: (laughs) I never thought of it that way. No, that's fair. I guess that is exactly what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, and also, like, there's just never a time where I don't find, then, music a satisfying alternative.
0: So, if you were to, so it. then, if you were to, if you were to, in an artistic way, uh, create something that expressed and shared some element of this rich inner life of yours with other people in the form of an audio file they could download the from an RSS my inner feed. life
2: is I don't have to share it with anyone, like...
0: Just answer okay, but, the question, Robin.
2: Okay, this is the thing. But I was just going to say, I never thought I'd be on a podcast. Not really whatever. But this week, I did actually think of something like a podcast that I would start. With. Oh. Um, except I think you said like if we had a whole budget and really high production. I think like what? by definition, this would have to be like a low budget podcast. And it would just be a podcast of Neil and I judging people's... Um, like aftermarket, uh, vehicle, <laughs> especially, especially like lifted trucks. Okay. So like people could just like, we would, we just see them and describe them or people could email us or I guess tweet if, but I'd have to join Twitter, That's like true. tweet, like pictures of lifted trucks that they saw. And we would judge like the aftermarket bumpers and like, you know, whether they have truck nuts. And this was, I thought about this because <laughs> today this while well, Neil was at work this week, there was a guy on his site. He kind of said, he's like, I saw this truck on the site and it was a lifted, you know, uh, through, you know, F-350, whatever, whatever. And you know where people hang truck nuts, like from the hitch? Yeah. A little bit in from that on the frame, this guy had just had a noose hung there. Oh. And we were like, that's just, I'm A, confused, and B, like, I think that's really dark. Like, the oh, only yeah. thing I can think of are some pretty bad scenarios of, like, dragging, you know, people yeah. behind a car. Mm-hmm. Which tends to have, like, quite racial overtones. And, um, or actually just straight up direct racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, we were just so confused. And I was like, maybe, like... Maybe this guy's Albertan, and he um, just, like, saw, like, because, like, the South does a lot of, like, lifted truck stuff, which then, like, people in Canada see and then do, maybe, and, like, not knowing the context or whatever. There's the podcast like,
3: right there. That's a, there's yeah. There's cultural the high-quality podcast.
2: <laughs> of the, high the quality South podcast. I don't...
3: by Canadians. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> Anyways. But then in a surprise twist, Neil is kind of like chatting with one of the other environmental inspectors on the project. Turns out this truck is owned by a black man from the southern U.S. and his business card, no word of a lie, says, from the cotton fields to the oil fields. And I'm like, I'm so confused. But if we had a podcast, at least we could like
0: unpack you know, that, have, I guess.
2: Well, we could have judged the like choice of like you know what sort of things you hang from your truck,
0: or you, or you. If you got his business card, you could call him and have him on
2: exactly, and be uh, like, what, "What went into this? Walk like, us through know, this. Walk, walk me through the decision making that made like had you lift your truck. I get that part. Bad aftermarket bumpers. I'm not as sympathetic. I have a lot of judgment <laughs> about that rims. Man, people put a lot of bad rims on their truck. True. But then I'm so curious because, like, I, I feel like I understand the truck nut phenomenon. Even Can if you I explain
3: don't. that to me? Because I sure. <laughs> sure
2: okay. It's like it's a pair of like very realistic looking. Oh, I've
3: seen them. I just, I just want to know
2: why. <laughs> oh, it's because when someone's in a big truck like that, they're like, they're sitting in the seat and like the cab is enclosed and the windows are tinted. You can't see the size of their balls. <laughs> so they need to let you know by hanging them off the back of the truck. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, are,
0: are people casting their own anatomy for this or are these just off the shelf? Festivals? I mean,
2: they're off the shelf and also like. Man, if that was actually cast to scale from your anatomy, then, like, I am hopping in that truck, like, to be honest.
0: I'm going to stop you right there and turn to Ryan.
2: <laughs> Long story short, Neil and I will do a low-budget podcast oh, about where we just judge the things that and, people do to their vehicles. And it's
0: very clear you, like, have enough content to have a weekly podcast about that, which kind of blows my mind. <laughs> All right,
3: Ryan, help what? us. Wow. <laughs> Maybe I should have gone second. I don't know how to, <laughs> know that. How to recover from that. Um, I don't know. I guess I guess my weird side hobby is uh, you know, urban design.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And not not doing it, but you know, reading <laughs> about Did its history. It? Uh, sure. and so, you know, there are a lot of like um little little mini Uh, kind of biopic documentaries about Jane Jacobs, but they're all told from the perspective of um, like her fight with Robert Moses and like it, it's told in a very boring way. So I would want to do a Jane Jacobs podcast that only talked to the philosophers she hung out with and only engaged uh, her her uh work in urban design through the lens of her philosophy yeah and and not talk about uh any of the fights in toronto or new york and just deal with like her her vision of the world that would be awesome
0: that uh that's a thing that should probably happen actually (laughs) that would be really great
2: Uh
3: sorry to sorry to really take the wind out of the sails there no, no, no. That's terrific. But
2: I would totally listen to the first 10 to 15 minutes of that podcast.
3: <laughs> <laughs> before you're you overtaken by the force of your own imagination? No, before a, before a truck drove by with some nuts hanging off the back. And then all of a sudden she was like, no, got to hit record to to do the other, <laughs> other podcast now. Yeah. Got I mean, to write down know, notes actually, for the show.
2: Like, <laughs> truck nuts are like the boring part. It's when you have to get into the nitty gritty of like, which rims did you put on and why and like. Do they match the bumpers? Anyways, this is the yeah, whole what's,
3: thing. That's what's the, the exciting of- part? <laughs> that's right. It
2: is.
0: You're going to have almost as many listeners as systematically does.
2: <laughs> have you guys seen the car blog world? We would be
1: famous. <laughs> Godspeed. Godspeed and good luck. I, you know,
0: I'm, I was not hopeful. I thought that's, this is kind of a boring frivolity prompt because I'm kind of a boring person. And Robin just never disappoints. And I'm so, like, I can't express my gratitude. Um, well, okay. What can we're, I lack in, my
2: philosophical sophistication? I, I, I bring <laughs> in frivolity.
3: <laughs> we're, we're cruising right into uh, Hallmark Christmas drinking game uh, oh, season. So.
2: We are, guys. We are.
3: I I, I was talking before the
0: show about um, getting my Alton Brown aged eggnog concocted and put in the fridge. I should have done it two months ago, but there's there's still time.
2: Yeah, especially because the drinking game is going to start early this year because I'm pretty sure Hallmark now just runs straight from – they put out a series of Thanksgiving films now, like over Mm. the Thanksgiving weekend. And then there's the countdown to Christmas. And I'm pretty sure they've actually just knit those together. I'm pretty sure you could just go with, like, a new movie every day from, like, Thursday of Thanksgiving. Christmas wow.
0: day. 3 plots
1: and 12 new movies.
2: Three, that's 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 a generous number of plots.
1: <laughs> 1.5. Yeah, there you go. Um, okay. <clears throat> let's get let's let's get serious now.
0: Um So, Ryan, last time you brought a a question uh, inspired by some confusion on the twitters about
1: divine freedom and and how it's predicated of God and how it, uh, how you would argue for it and stuff. Um, and, and I, with characteristic, uh, sense dragged us way down deep into the weeds on
0: agency because I'm pretty convinced by Lonergan that if you're going to talk about divine freedom, you need like a one, you need to have a theory of divine operation. Um, And if you're going to have a theory of divine operation or divine agency, you need like a general theory of agency. Uh, Now, this is way less fun than just like shouting at people about like whether God is free or whether God is beyond freedom and necessity and um, pointing to your favorite, uh, you know, church father or whatever. Um, Not that that's not important, but, you know, if you if you want to actually ask and answer questions that help to ask and answer them. So we talked about Lonergan's uh, retrieval of and augmentation of Thomas's theory of agency. And that um, really to be an agent, to, to have agency truly predicated of some subject is for um, there to exist something that depends on that subject's act or its own act of existence, right? That, and this is to say that agency is, is predicated extrinsically, right? That something is truly called an agent, not because of some change or something that comes about or some accident in the subject, but rather um, on the basis of something extrinsic to the subject, namely its effect. Um, and that effect is an effect because it depends on something else's act for its own act. So I gave the example of like uh, a ringing bell or a gong or something. And then my coming to hear it, right? The the sounding gong is the cause of my hearing it. Uh, it is the agent of the effect of my hearing it, and my hearing it depends on the gong in fact actually sounding for me to hear it. Um, and so this was this was extrinsic predication. And then we talked a little bit at the end <clears throat> about the idea that when it comes to God, you have an instance of extrinsic predication that is also an instance of what's called contingent predication, which is um, that God is truly called the cause of the world, um, that God is truly called creator, is on the basis of an extrinsic predication, um, and it's also on the basis of an extrinsic predication where the extrinsic denominator, that, that thing other than God, which exists
1: depend- in full dependence on God's act, um, is contingent. Uh, and so, the predication of that creative agency is also contingently predicated. Okay. Um. Robin's making a face at me.
2: No, I. I've been mean, thinking about this this week, and like, I was just thinking about whether, like, I don't have an argu- like I don't have an argument against that as being true, but I'm wondering when it comes to like
1: human agency,
2: whether you always also have a change in the agent, not necessarily like maybe not by necessity, like are there, is there anything, even if agency is externally predicated, Mm -hmm. like, is there anything that I like that I, I do that doesn't involve a change in me? I mean, like that's like, I mean, the whole, like, argument of, like, habituation, right? Basically, relies realize on, like, you do a thing, and in doing those things, it changes who you are, right? And, like, penance is totally related on that, right? Like, when you do a bad thing, it changes you. It kind of disorders your soul. Therefore, like, even if you're forgiven, you go back and do penance. You need to basically... Re- Anyways, and it just got me thinking, like, even if that's true of, like, even if agency is externally predicated... Is it, ac- is it actually possible to have acts where that an agent performs that doesn't also change the agent?
0: If it's not, then God can't be the unmoved mover. This is what Thomas sees yeah. when he rejects. I think he rejects, I think it's got to be Avicenna's argument on this. Um, that that Thomas is unwilling to have one theory of agency for creatures and another theory of
1: agency for the creator. Um. And and the reason you might need that is because you think that all movers are moving. Right?
0: You think all, all, all things which affect change are themselves changing. Um and the the elegance of Aristotle's solution to this and Thomas's appropriation and, and development of it is that uh, it gives you one it gives you one theory of agency uh <clears throat> in which insofar as it is an agent, uh whether it is moving or not moving is
1: not actually relevant to the agency. Um, Right. That, that qua mover, um, the difference that makes a difference is the existence of the effect.
0: So it might in fact be also be moving or being changed by something else or something. Right. And this is uh, Thomas's point about the, um, about the sort of, the, the the role of the order of the cosmos, that uh that creatures have to be brought into the proper disposition with one another in order for uh an agent to be efficacious with regard to the material of its effect. So I so if I light a match, um, <clears throat> that match has to get into the proper spatiotemporal disposition to the candle wick to produce a burning candle wick. Right? Um so just having a lit, can, uh, a lit match and a flammable candle wick doesn't yet produce actual agency. You need, you need the te- spatiotemporal ordering of the cosmos to bring them into the proper disposition to one another. And so the order of the cosmos uh, has to consist in the sort of prior movements of agents to, the, to what would be an agent with, uh, excuse me, the, the,
1: proper, uh,
0: the movement into proper disposition of what would be an agent to the material of what will
1: become its effect. Um, so the, the match has to find its way to the wick in order to ignite. Um, but God, God doesn't need that. And so God is, a,
0: uh, God is an agent that uh, doesn't need to be moved and, in fact, is not moved by anything else in order to be efficacious. Um, right. and, and because God's not, uh, neither spatial nor temporal, God is, in fact, eternally efficacious as an agent.
2: Yeah, I guess I'm just wondering how that account of agency in Thomas then basically squares with his account of moral agency.
0: Uh, I have a theory, and now maybe we're getting a little uh, a little farther down the line here. So let's let's we'll let's circle because an account of moral agency wait, 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 depends up, on
2: we an. We can put a pin on this if you're coming back to it. I just, this is what I've been thinking about this week is is how you square the kind of external predication with kind yeah. of accounts of moral agency. But it's, we can get back to that.
0: It's a good question. And I can actually, because I just talked about the order of the cosmos, I can actually uh, at least when it talk, when we talk about habit, I can talk about that first. And then we can we can maybe get that going a little bit and let's drop, drop back to the more fundamental question of like, well, if we're gonna talk about moral agency, we have to talk about liberty. Right. Um so when it comes to habit, uh Thomas I, I'm of the opinion that that Thomas's theory of the um, proper disposition of potential agents to the material of their potential effects is is also his is the same governing theory it's the same actually cosmology that's governing his theory of habit that mm-hmm. um that as the as the match the lit match needs to come into the proper disposition to the wick so to internally um there are prior conditions to my acts of free agency that i have to be in the right disposition towards that act to be willing to do it um and so there's so there's in the sort of macrocosmos of cosmic process uh so too then in the microcosm of the human soul or human spirit there's a a need for a kind of prior order of dispositions that makes um in you know in the uh in the medieval Frame that ordering, it has to do with like the crystal spheres and stuff. And so it's much more not mechanistic, that's a little later, but it's much more, it has to do with sort of nesse, uh, internally necessary causal relationships. In a more modern frame, we might say like it makes things probable, right? Things being in the right spatiotemporal disposition um, takes care of the, the prerequisite conditions um, and, and, and improves the probability of, of an efficacious
1: action um and then so too on the inside right um if i as i uh as i do virtuous actions
0: i create a kind of internal ordering and an internal disposition of my soul or my spirit or my psyche or whatever um that makes it uh that sets the prior conditions for uh, me to be the the effective agent of future virtuous acts um, so my argument is that is that the account of premotion is actually governing both, both the the sort of physics of causality and also the moral psychology of of agency.
2: Right. Which I think probably I mean, at least he, I don't have to think this through more, but I can see parallels with what Thomas says in the beginning of De Mallow with like kind of explaining how sin comes about. He talks about a prior disposition. Actually, for that matter, kind of square like. Do you think that that's essentially what Lonergan means when he describes basic sin?
1: Um, that, uh, that has to do with, um, and we'll get into this, that has to do with sort of a failure of agency.
0: Um, that he's leaning, I mean, he's leaning on Thomas's account there, and, I, uh, and this would take us a little farther afield. But, but yeah, I really, I think that there you have to think in terms of um, a failure of the efficacy of the agent. Right. Um, that right. you morally ought to do something and, and, uh, and you fail to do it. Right.
2: Anyway, sorry. We can talk about the relationship of this to the moral realm later, but it got me really thinking about the external predication, like how that works if you want to build an account of habit, but it makes sense what you're saying about the disposition. So right. anyways, we can move on to the, to the free. Right. We can actually talk about freedom this week.
3: <laughs> Yay. Okay. But to, to, to underscore, I think the more relevant point there is that, um, if you have a fully generalized theory of operation, then um, you don't need, you don't need two sets of rules for the moving and the unmoved. Mm -hmm. And so you can still talk about all of the various ways in which um, human action does involve uh, or does entail changes in a human being as moving um, without invalidating the more basic metaphysical point that, the thing that makes uh, a, a moving human also a mover or also a causer is the existence of an effect.
2: Right. And so it doesn't, so, they don't have to be moving to be
3: exactly. Yeah. And, or, or they don't have to be unmoved either. So that's Tom's main point is you don't, there doesn't need to be two theories of causality um, to talk about the two different kinds of agents. Right. You and can it can have it, one theory of agency that applies generally and universally to all instances of agency, because what makes an agent an agent is the existence of an effect, and the existence of an effect is predicated externally to the agent. And, and right, so then, but- when you talk about
0: uh, cooperation between human agency and divine agency, then you can say, right? Um, well, in some cases, uh, an effective instance of of created agency. Can itself be the effect of divine agency. Yep. So that uh, there's no conflict between my my action and God's action, because the, the causal efficacy of my action um, is itself an effect. It receives its existential act from God's creative agency. Um, and so there's no there's no like competitive agency there. I I would not be
1: acting at all were not I depending on God's creative agency um but none of that explains why any of this is free (laughs) and that's the hard part um
0: because the the tendency then is is to want to say to have a, a broadly speaking a sort of libertarian account of freedom where like well what is freedom freedom is the ability to have done otherwise um Well, but if you, if you bring this theory of agency to bear on that, that really what that means is that, um,
1: freedom consists in the effects of one's agency being contingent. And that's tautologous, right? Like to, to be in effect is definitionally to be contingent. Um, it is to depend on something else for your act. Um, and so,
0: so to, to, to offer counterfactuals as though they guarantee or explain human freedom, let alone divine freedom, um, doesn't does actually distinguish human or divine agency from the agency of my dog or the agency of um, my pen, because the dependence of a contingent yeah. effect upon that thing act uh, is just what it, that in which all agency consists. Um alternatively, in, in response to this libertarian account, you will sometimes get um
2: It's not freedom from, it's freedom for. Correct Which I'm pretty sure even a younger version of me has probably embarrassingly written in a paper because you read it everywhere.
1: Oh yeah, all the time. Yeah. All right. This is the alternative account. Is that um what
0: what is what is true liberty, right? They always want to sort of like emphasize, put it in italics, right? What is true liberty, not just negative freedom, but positive freedom? It's freedom for. It's freedom as the power to affect the good, right? To do the good. And so to be free is to, is to in fact, basically to be free is to uh, possess the act upon which, you know, the, the, the moral act for which you're responsible would depend. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is tautologous as well, right? That's true. My dog has the power to do the good. Uh, and she has the power to do the good because she's a dog doing good. dog stuff, being a dog. And uh, so too, my pen has the power to do the good, which is to say, to be a pen that writes stuff. Um, to have the power to do the good distinguishes your agency from. Uh,
1: you know, unfree, unsentient agency, exactly not at all. Um, and so neither of these
0: accounts are particularly satisfying, uh, which is a shame given how prevalent they both are. And now I'm going to say something that's kind of annoying, which is I'm having thought about this the last couple of weeks and weeks and, and really trying to sort of get my head around what within this broadly Thomistic, Lonerganian frame we're working in, what free, what makes free agency different from agency just in general. And the difference is that the act upon which the effect depends is rational.
2: John, that doesn't sound very free at all.
0: <laughs> it doesn't sound free, does it? Um, that assumes you know what freedom is. Uh, and it also has the, the further problem, which is it also assumes you know what rationality is. Oh,
2: well, we're getting Socratic in here. Aren't we? Yeah,
0: we've got some <laughs> issues, right? Because um, now in our effort to figure out what, uh, what liberty is, a much controverted term, we've just invoked an even more controverted term, rationality. Um, so we're clearly in trouble. Uh, this, just as a matter of anecdote, uh, is the situation I found myself in trying to write the last chapter of my dissertation that i was i was going to make a point about the manner in which human human agency cooperates with divine agency and the core of the point was that uh human agency has a kind of special status cooperating with divine agency that other causal agents don't have namely that it's free uh and then i came to this sort of conclusion about rationality and then i went oh crap i'm going to have to write a section in this chapter explaining what rationality is <laughs> And that's what you call painting yourself into a corner.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Anyway, I so spent, I spent a number of weeks uh, burning through legal pads trying to figure out Lonergan and Thomas's account of
1: rationality.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it's easy. It's inductive reasoning. Everyone knows that. Obviously, yeah, of course.
1: Scientific method.
0: Um, no, it's, it's the rationality or the, the, the rules
1: you learn in a basic class in logic. Um, obviously neither of these are satisfactory answers either. Um, on Lonergan's read of Thomas, rationality is the, essentially it's the, it's the self possession of knowledge.
0: It is, um, so let's start, let's start from the human analog first. This is sort of, this is why Lonergan ends up writing, uh, first the articles uh, on the Verbamentus and Thomas, right? He's trying to uh, get to a topic we'll get to later. He's trying to circle around to the procession of the divine word. Um, and he's, he's trying to work out from uh, a few, uh, frankly, fairly cryptic lines in Thomas about the, the image or analogy from which uh, Thomas is going to speculate about how that procession worked. Which is the, the, the much misunderstood possession of the, the inner word or the, the mental word in human beings. Um, and the, and the analogy is basically this that when you have the experience of going from mystification, from having a question but not understanding, to understanding, when, you ha- when the light bulb goes on, when you have the flash of insight, when you have the aha, eureka moment, um, that is. Intellect in act it is intelligere. it is active understanding. You go from not understanding to understanding.
1: Uh, you are actually understanding to uh, belabor with synonyms but the the thing about the act
0: of understanding is that it's an immediate apprehension of the intelli- of, of an intelligibility in that over which you are puzzling um. And the thing about immediate apprehensions for human beings is we can't do anything with them. They're indistinct, indeterminate. Uh, we experience them kind of globally. Uh, so if you if you if you sort of recall to yourself the experience of an aha moment or the light bulb going on or whatever, um, right? That flash, that that aha, that that spark
1: or pivot or whatever you want, to, whatever symbol you want to give to the experience um it's 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 it's
0: it's indistinct it's total it's uh it's kind of why that the sort of image of light is so effective right um and then you have the thing that my students do all the time which is i see the light bulb go on because they they make a face in response to the flash of insight and then i go what what did you get and then they panic and they panic because they realize they had they understood they had the experience of coming to understand and now they have to do this thing where they express to me in language the content of what they've understood right so they they have the content in the immediacy of this
1: experience of coming to un- coming to understand um but but they don't have a kind of formal possession of it my argument that is that the um that t- the
0: the measure of the adequacy of their expression is their possession of the content of their understanding as an inner word as a verbum and I've actually I've done some work to, to say that um, that is experienced as what Eugene Denlin calls a felt meaning or a a, a kind of a kind of embodied felt
1: meaning um, that that you so if you if you meet someone uh, who you've met before. Actually, let me use a different example. You're talking to somebody about uh, a third person, and you
0: can't remember that third person's name, and you're doing that like uh, it's on the tip of my tongue thing. I used this example on the podcast before, I'm sure. And they start pitching names to you: Tim, Susan, Willie, whatever. You and you know that those those are wrong, and yet somehow when they say the right name, uh, Wilson, you go, Ah, yeah, that's it. What's the criterion of your recognizing the correctness of that verbal symbol?
1: It's your apprehension, pre-linguistically, of your understanding of who that person is. Um, And
0: that is something that simultaneously coming to understand proceeds in your consciousness or in the antiquated language in your soul. Um, It is the possession of your knowledge, knowing itself to be a knowing. Let me say that again. It is your possession of your knowledge knowing itself to be a knowing. Um, and it's on the basis of, basis of which you can have like meaningful speech. Um, and it's also the, on the basis of which you can have discursive reasoning, right that that you don't just have the synchronic flash of the appreh- immediate apprehension of, of Intelligere, um, but rather, you also have a diachronic possession that has a a kind of phantasmatic quality, I talk about it as an embodied felt quality, um, to which you can refer in the dialectical process of comparing and and relating logically or otherwise these meanings. Um, And so that kind of rational apprehension that is the core of the meaning of concepts, that is the core of of, uh, discursive reasoning processes, That at root is what rationality is. It's the possession of your knowing as a knowing
1: and as knowledge and basically as knowledge that it's a knowing. Um, And so when Thomas then over and over and over again talks about willing,
0: it's interesting that his uh, his when he talks about willing and he talks about the sort of initial apprehension of the good that kicks off the discursive process of deliberation, he over and over and over again, and Lonergan has like this long footnote in the
1: third chapter of the Verbum articles where he gives you all the examples over and over and over again. He gives you
0: the, um, the formulation that the good is apprehended in a word or, or in a concept so that, uh, your apprehension of the good from the very beginning of the of the deliberative process of willing for Thomas is always mediated by meaning by a, a verbum by a, a ratio a concept, um, and and that seems to me is integral to his account of free volition is um, what what is the thing that really makes it free? It's that ultimately the culminating act of volition is rational. It it consists in this kind of intelligent apprehension of knowledge that knows it's knowing,
1: and that's what makes it free. Not counterfactuals, not that you have the power to do the good. Um, it's that you know that the thing you are going to decide to do is worthwhile. Ryan, did you want to jump in? Well, there's an objection here. Yeah,
3: um, and the objection is. A- I think a fairly obvious one, which is that the theory of rationality put forward here um, applies universally to the kinds of rational creatures that humans are, namely those whose knowledge is mediated by a word um, and, and thereby discursive. But what does that have to do with divine knowledge, one A and one B, since the organizing question is actually about divine freedom, if God's knowledge is not discursive um, and therefore um, not, not a, a, a straightforwardly human account of reason is not going to be sufficient uh, to, ger- or to sort of secure an insight about what divine freedom must mean, aren't we still backed into a corner about what in the world divine freedom is? It's oh, a really good objection. Yeah, go ahead, Robin.
2: I just think Ryan hasn't spent enough time in Sunday school. Because <laughs>
0: Ryan, <laughs> I I assure you, Jesus. you are wrong about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's not rush. Let's not rush to the Sunday school answer. Um, let's sit with the objection for a minute, um, be, because this That's objection so much less <laughs> so much less what
1: easy.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, we're not here to do the easy stuff. Um, so. That's a good objection. And then, in fact, is an objection that really stymies a lot of philosophical thought on this question. Um, And quite reasonably, forestalls a lot of thinkers uh, on the way to Thomas Aquinas um, from affirming divine liberty. Um, Even if they have this kind of uh, sophisticated position on freedom as being mediated by a word as consisting in now, you know, rational knowledge comes to an, an intrinsic uh, term, right? Eventually you apprehend the sufficiency of, of, uh, of your cause or your reason or your evidence. And, um, and you are, uh, y- your, your reasoning process comes to an inter- an internal conclusion um, because you, in Lonergan's terms, right, you, you are able to affirm that the conditions of the condition you want to know have been met, uh, and so you can make an affirmation of like, well, if A then B, but A therefore B, all right, I'm going to affirm that this is the case. Um, but in, in, rational, in, in the sort of rationality of freedom, you have a problem, which is what you're deliberating about is definitionally not yet. Um, you are deliberating about uh, what ought to be, what would be worthwhile to bring about. And consequently, um, the conditioned does not yet exist. Uh, and so you can't make a kind of judgment of fact, a rational judgment of fact. So the rationality, the, the discursive process that the rationality grounds is, is in principle indeterminate. Uh, and what is the thing that brings it to a conclusion? Um, that you decide uh, that you on the basis of your rational apprehension of the mediation of the good in a word um, you both determine what course of action you will take to bring about that good. And then you um, set about to do it. You, you determine yourself. Uh, you might even say that you give yourself a law. Uh, if only there's a pithy word for that. Um <laughs> And then you exercise your freedom of exercise, and you go do it. Uh, Now, that process as an analog for God doesn't work very well, uh, in no small part because of God's eternality. Um, But also just, there's a lot of like, there's a a duality of self-reflection. There's a duality between me and the thing I'm deliberating about. I mean, there's all kinds of... um, threats to divine simplicity and eternality in that analog. Uh, and so, it, you know, not for nothing, uh, especially in, under the influence of Neoplatonism, uh, there was a long hesitance to really robustly
1: affirm divine freedom uh, in, a, in a kind of straightforward speculative way. Um, that being said, <laughs> uh, there's Though, though there is not discursive reasoning in the deity,
0: uh, Christians are a distinct advantage on this question because we do affirm that a word proceeds in God. Robin, that's your chance.
2: It's Jesus
0: <laughs> um, right there's there is a word that proceeds in God. Um, and that word is uh, consubstantial with the Father, and so the substance of the Word is uh, a, a, a sort of a kind of possession of the, the being of the Father and so of, the, of the, what the Father knows, which is to say uh, everything about everything, including God's own being. Um, and so you can make the affirmation on, the ba- on, a tr- on an explicitly Trinitarian theological basis of divine liberty, according to this speculative analog from human freedom. That doesn't make the discursive character of the exercise of freedom the thing that matters, but in fact, properly the rationality, um, which is to say, the uh, the procession of a word that has that uh, that is possession of the the knowledge of the knowing, and uh, and so it, it really is Christian Trinitarian theology that provides the materials that allow for. A robust affirmation of of divine freedom and divine agency. That divine agency is not just um, the outflowing of what it is to be uh, the divine unity, nor is it uh, sort of a kind of necessary consequence even of uh, the um, procession of the of the persons, um, but it's the contingent extrinsic terms' dependence on.
1: The procession of a word in God. Um, another way of saying that is to say that um, it is the word through whom all things are made which uh, Christians I understand it are, are supposed to believe Well and, and to
3: muddy the waters further with some more technical Trinitarian business Let's um, do it The analog for the father in Thomas's account of the procession is not intelligere true uh intelligere um the act of understanding is a way of talking about god qua god being itself or understanding itself right so from what does the word proceed if not from intelligere
1: for thomas it's de chens, right
3: so it's not it's not just um, the globally immediate act of understanding by which um, the the tension of inquiry is released or something like that in human terms it's specifically the word that proceeds from speaker um, from a knower um, and so from uh, a kind of agent yeah um, and f- and then furthermore when you get the further into the prima pars you realize that um, his account of creation is explicitly predicated on his account of the procession. Can't talk about the about creation at all, except as uh, as a as, as a sort of contingent external term that has as its um, at the base of its relation of dependence, uh, the procession of the word. So you know it's 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 not just a matter of um, sort of convenience that uh, the de the, the de comes before or uh, the treatise on creation. Um, there's there's the, the the materials there both speculatively and theologically for Thomas to be able to talk about creation are all built out in his account of the processions.
0: Right. And you, and, and so you, and so you see Thomas, you know, setting these things up in a way such that, and, you know, in part it's pedagogical and in part it's logical. Um, and those are obviously aren't opposed anyway, but um, that to, to integrate the affirmation of divine freedom, that's going to ground um, the claim that God's love is not just kind of some uh, you know metaphysical effulgence or something but real but really is a, a personal uh a, a personal love um a, a subjective a, a subjectively gen- uh originating and uh and directed kind of act with a term uh yeah you, you have to have the trinitarian uh, you have to have the trinitarian theology in place but just on the basis of the Dieu, you know you don't have enough um to do that and that's actually something i find really uh Interesting about bringing Lonergan's intervention into the contemporary discussion is that so much of the so much of the the complaint about Thomas's position is that it's too abstract, too philosophical, too uh, constrained to discussions of the divine nature and of divine simplicity and so forth, um, and that it doesn't take into account enough the doctrinal concreteness of um, Christian theology. Uh, but I think you know if you follow Lonergan in reading this stuff, the it's it's precisely the doctrinal concreteness of his Christian theology that makes the uh, affirmation of divine freedom possible at all. Um, you if if Lonergan is right and that for at, Thomas, at least
3: it's at least it's um, sort of speculative coherence, right? You can af- you can affirm enough, right? it um, yeah. from a, other a, other directions, but you're not really going to have. A lot of resources to be able to make it make much sense.
0: No, I think that's right, and I think that's important too for the in terms of um, the sort of historical unfolding of the development. At one point, I wanted to talk about Borel's um, recounting of the sort of history of this development in Thomas, but I uh, I couldn't find my copy of Towards a Jewish Christian Muslim Theology. So, uh, and I had a lot of papers to grade last week, so I didn't get to read it. Um, and maybe we can do that one day. But um, but yeah, you know, yeah, if you're going to talk about the sort of development, the development is goaded on by a persistent doctrinal affirmation. Um, but the, the material that makes the speculative, uh, make it possible to shed speculative light on it, on the affirmation, uh, yeah, really does come from this exploration of uh, Trinitarian procession and the analogs that shed some
1: imperfect but nonetheless fruitful light on it. Well, now that we got that tied up in a nice little bow... <laughs> we worked it
0: out. Um, now, Robin, I don't know that that entirely uh, circles back to your questions about human moral agency and habit and things like that, but maybe we can, maybe we can come back to that one day.
2: Hmm? Yeah, that seems like, like in ret- retrospect, kind of, um, well, I mean, actually, the, I think that's part of the question or the debate is how much do those moral questions actually like, affect the metaphysical framework itself. But I feel like that's kind of too big of a topic for right now.
0: Yeah. I mean, one thing you can say, I think, is is that in order to address some of those questions about the nature of human moral deliberation, human moral decision-making and things like that, um, you have to turn the telescope around. And you have to, at least within, the, within this framework, right, within this account, um, you have to then start talking about uh, the the sort of acts that constitute human rationality as um, acts for which one can take responsibility. Um, and so, and and so you kind of have to, it's affirming that acts are free because they depend on rational act. Um, if you want to get it like, okay, but what does that have to do with like the development of habit and how we make these kinds of decisions? I actually think you have to swing the telescope around and look at it. For yeah. Me.
2: Well, but I think you also need to then, like basically evaluate this metaphysical account of agency based on whether it can be squared with an account of moral agency, right? Otherwise, then you have to say, like, yeah, anyway, I, that's a question for another time, but I think that partly you're thinking through what, like, moral agency looks like and how we hold human responsibility will come back to whether this account of agency, metaphysical account of agency, actually
0: I mean, I can say something about that. I can say something about that quickly. I mean, which is the, the account of responsibility here precisely is precisely metaphysical, which mm-hmm. is that um, I, as the subject of the rational acts of, of moral deliberation, ultimately have to come to the exor- the freedom of exercise, right? I have to come to like I, an up or down, yes or no decision. I have to say yes or no. I'm going to do this or not. Um, and that is the sort of final condi- metaphysical condition uh, on which the act itself and the effects it produces um, depend. Uh, so, right, so, so the, in, in, within this account of agency, um, me as a subject, I am, my act and my rational act is that on which the act depends, and that's why I'm responsible for it. Um, and, and, be, and because I have to, like, in this rational way, conscious, with rational self-consciousness, decide I'm not just responsible for it in the sense of it metaphysically depends on me, but it also, um, it, it, it rationally depends on me. It, it depends on me and I know it depends on me. So I'm responsible for it. Um, it's also why like Thomas's account of, um, of sin can sometimes be uh, in the modern frame, a little unsatisfying. Cause it's like, it's really not consequentialist at all. <laughs> right? yeah. It's like, did you will God's law or not? And it seems like weirdly internal and weirdly psychological uh, for a modern frame. Now, whether that's adequate or not would be, you're right, a, a topic for a different episode. But, um, but I think in terms of responsibility, there's a really clear account of the way in which the agent is responsible for the action and responsible in a way unique
1: from a dog or um, a tree falling in the forest or something. Okay. Whew,
2: well, I also I'm tired, now. To say... <laughs> Earlier, I meant to say deductive, and I said inductive, but then the conversation kept going, and I couldn't fix the mistake, and that's haunted me ever since.
0: Oh, but, I thought you were taking a shot at scientism,
1: um, but, you know, deductive, but we, we got them both in there. Um, well, cool.
2: I mean, there's a place for both types of reasoning. It's just like, that's not the extent of rationality.
0: Turns out. No. I'm, in,
2: I'm into both of them.
0: <laughs> for it. Positive. Woo! Um, big thumbs up.
2: Yeah, love me some science, guys, (laughs) but also, and love me some deductive reasoning, but I don't have to choose one or the other as the sole definition of rationality.
1: Boy, that's a whole
0: other other episode, too. Well, I I done wore myself out over here, uh, moving a thousand miles an hour through all that metaphysics, so uh, we're going to say adios. you've been listening to systematically you can send us an email at systematic or excuse me that's our twitter like i said i'm tired uh find us on twitter at systematic pod send us an email systematically at gmail.com you can support us uh if, uh if it sounds like we need help on patreon.com slash systematically our intro and outro music as always is track 14 off of ghost 2 by nine inch nails and this week go out there be responsible bye